Are you looking to buy or sell a home? Wondering where to start? Do you have questions about mortgage and real estate and need honest, accurate answers? Well, you're in the right place. Welcome to The Educated Home Buyer with expert real estate broker, Jeb Smith, and certified mortgage consultant, Josh Lewis, where we discuss everything you need to know to buy right, borrow smart, and build wealth through real estate ownership. Welcome to the Educated Home Buyer Live, where our goal is to help you buy right, borrow smart, and build wealth through real estate ownership and investing. Anybody uh, that's new to the show, uh, we do that by answering your questions on mortgage and real estate. So if you have something, drop it in the chat below. For those of you who are regular viewers, been here several times, uh, we appreciate uh, you guys being here. So we typically start the show by giving you a little bit of a market update, if you will, what's happening in the world of you know, economics, mortgage, real estate, how it all relates. And then we dive into some questions. So Josh, over the last week, we've seen interest rates improve. We've seen the 10-year come down. At the same time, we've seen the Fed come out today and basically say that, you know, inflation is, again, their primary concern. They will do what they need to do um, in order to tame that. And at the same time, coming out and saying that, you know, a half percent to three quarters of a percent hike is essentially on the table for next week's meeting. So with that said, Josh, what are your thoughts on that and uh, what's happening in the world of rates? Well, I, we can sum that one up in simple phrase. Fed's going to Fed. These guys do what they do. Um, they generally, it's funny, um, for a group of really intelligent, educated people, they do a lot of dumb things. Um, but they're on this course and they have to stay on this course. If they didn't do 50 to 75 basis points and the inflation stays high, then everyone would burn them uh, on a cross. So they're going to, to keep their foot on the gas at least through July. What we're seeing is the markets, which we've talked about, um, markets despite, markets meaning those in the markets to buy long-term bonds, specifically US treasuries, um, are looking at this going, yes, inflation is uh, elevated right now. We're not comfortable with it, so we want a higher yield, but nowhere near what uh, inflation dictates. So with uh, the last read we had with what, 8.5, 8 8.6, 10-year went to about 3.5. That's still a 5% negative rate of return. Um, if you believed that for the 10 year duration of that bond, that inflation was going to stay at eight and a half percent. So the markets don't believe it. Um, the markets liked what the Fed did, uh, stepping in with 75 basis points, and they're fairly convinced that they're going to do it again. So what has changed? Jeb, we threw up the chart last week of the Atlanta GDP now, the Fed, Atlanta Fed GDP now, and it was right at zero last week. And where are we today? Two point minus 2.1% when we looked at minus yeah. 2.1. So right. still we have a lot of people saying the economy is strong. The employment market is strong. We can withstand aggressive fed hikes. And I don't necessarily disagree that that's the messaging the fed has to go out with because they don't have a choice. They have to continue these hikes and they have to say, it's going to be fine. It's going to be okay. Don't worry about it. You're going to be okay. Take your medicine. Um, what we're going to see is most likely if they come with another 75, we're going to go lower. So again, the 10 year today was up 12 basis points. So we ended at 293. We were down as low yesterday, um, actually even today at 275 at the bottom. 
um, and we don't really hit any resistance until 261. So that was from three and a half percent to 275. So three quarters in improvement, and that's about the improvement that we've seen in interest rates from that time, from the very worst of the rates where we were seeing 6.2 with the the Freddie Mac primary mortgage market survey, down to quoting now somewhere around the five and a half percent range. Yeah, and something to note if you're listening to this and and you know you're listening to Josh quote numbers at 2.8, 2.9 percent. He's talking about the 10-year note. The 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 30-year fix trades about two you add about 2.4 percent spread on top of what's happening right now with regards to that 10-year to get an idea of where rates are is it 2.4 2.5 percent on top josh well if you say we peaked at like 6.2 in rates and 3.5 on the 10-year it got as high as 2.75 but two and okay. a half two four yeah. somewhere in that range is is reasonable so and interest rates reason- today mid fives yeah yeah, and the reason why we we talk more about the ten-year treasury is the ten-year treasury is the guy walking the dog, and the the mortgage-backed securities are the dogs on the leash. They're not going to get too far ahead or behind of that ten-year treasury. So we want to see what's happening there. If I show you the charts, they're very similar in in how they move. Um, we had seen a really strong move over the last five, six, seven days in mortgage-backed securities, and we gave back a chunk of it today. Not to be expected, but the support we have at the 25-day moving average held. So as long as that holds tomorrow, um, we really have a battle of of the shorts and the longs, the bulls and the bears in the bond market right now. The the bears really want to hold this level and push it back under the 25-day moving average. The fundamentals, um, a weakening economy, inflation, still the thought is it's going to get under control. Jeb and I talked about this this morning. What does that mean? If we flash forward to next spring, does that mean we're magically back down at the 2% level the Fed would like? I don't think so. I think it's pretty optimistic. But if we got somewhere between 3% to 5%, it's a ton better than 8.5%, and it would look like things are moving in the right direction. So those are the things we're watching. Rates improved a ton, even though we gave back a chunk of it today. Um, And the expectation is... That, um, that we have some more room for improvement, but we're kind of in a gray area right now that we need to see what the next move is. So let me ask you this, Josh. So typically speaking, if the Fed does what the market expects, the the 10-year Treasury interest rates typically improve. I mean, they don't get any worse, right? They Worst case, they stay the same, um, which is essentially what we saw when the Fed did a three-quarter point hike, right? It was more aggressive than some people thought they would do. Um, kind of met what a lot of the market was expecting. Therefore, 10-year Treasury uh, improved, interest rates improved at that same time. Well, today the Fed came out their minutes and said, you know, half a percent hike is on the table, uh, along with, you know, the the potential of a three-quarter percent hike. Um, it didn't really say one or the other. I think it made it sound more like they were leaning towards three-quarter percent of a hike. But you know, the 10 year treasury at that point didn't react, uh, it didn't pull back. Um, so it, it, it actually got worse as you mentioned a moment ago. So why do you think the market reacted a little bit adversely to, um, to that news versus maybe kind of improving based on what they're hearing that the feds probably going to do what is expected and maybe even more, a little bit more aggressive than what's expected. I don't think today's reaction was a fundamental move. I think it was a trader based move that we had gone. Um, so so basically the Fed met on June 14th, their announcement came out on the 15th. So from June 9th, when we got that hot CPI reading to their uh, meeting and announcement on the 14th, we lost 
looks like 101 down to 98. We lost three points in bond pricing, three quarters of a percent in interest rate in one, two, three, four trading days. And the Fed comes out and announces and it sells off even worse, but then finishes strong by the end of the day. So basically since the Fed announcement on June 15th, we have gone from the worst part of that day at 98.20 to the best part of today at 101.12. So basically we got back everything. We're back where we were before that hot CPI reading came out. So it's, it's, we want to be careful to say, oh, things are better and rates are dropping. We're just basically back to where we were before we got that big blip. Because what happened is the markets looked at that hot CPI figure and said, hey, the Fed's lost the plot. The Fed changes direction. Three days later, comes back and says, nope, we're going heavy, three quarters of a point. And we're probably going to do three quarters of a point next month. And they don't like to upset or disappoint the markets. And once the markets have absorbed an idea of what's going to happen, they're probably not going to deviate from it. So I would be surprised, not shocked or stunned. I would be surprised if in uh, another week, is it next week or the following week that they meet this month? It's next week, right? Yeah. So next next week, we're going to get another three quarters of a point. I would be surprised. There are... Um, some signs of softening in the economy that would give them some cover to do 50 basis points. I think they'll hit another 75 the and then be, be less, like less likely to hit their targets of what they announced at the last meeting for the rest of the year. Um, Cause I think we're going to see a lot more soft readings and uh, you know, it, it's interesting. The, the market definition of a recession is two consecutive months of, of negative GDP growth. That's not how the government, determines when we had a recession. If you look back, we had like a three week recession during COVID. That was not two quarters worth of information. They take three measures. Um, employment has to get much worse. Uh, GDP growth has to sink. And they look at those measures and they look at them about six to 12 months after the fact before they're gonna call a recession. Um, the reason why the two, two consecutive quarters of negative growth has generally been considered a recession is the Fed's never not called one when we've had those two things occur. So highly likely that Q2 here, we won't know until the end of Q3. So we're about three, two and a half months away from knowing for sure. Whether or not we're in a recession. Whether or not we're in a recession. But all of the signs are there. Um, there are still some strengths and, and, and good things going on in the economy, but there's a bunch of negative things as well. So is it a terrible economy? Are we falling off a cliff? Are we heading for a depression? No one feels that way, but definitely slowing. And that the, the whole reason why we follow it and talk about it is recessions are deflationary. You know, um, I, I'm telling Jeb, I, I took note of this uh, a week or so ago, but one of the, the guys that I follow, and I don't know who to correctly attribute it to, said, we're absolutely gonna have a recession. And by Q1, Q2 of next year, we're gonna have the 10 year treasury back down at 2%. So Jeb and I were asking ourselves this morning, what does that mean for mortgage rates? The historical average is 1.7 spread to treasury. So that would tell you like a 3.7 rate, but in really volatile times, like we're having those spreads uh, widen out. So two, 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 four is probably reasonable. So if he's correct, sometime early next year, we're in the low to mid fours. Best case would be high threes. So um, I don't think that's an unreasonable projection. The thing that would throw that off track would be inflation to remain persistently high. And there's some reasons to believe that that can happen. It's mainly food and energy. Our government right now seems to be saying, hey, we don't care that we are causing fuel inflation. Um, we're going to save the environment 30 years down the line. 
Um, so there's, there are very logical reasons why gas prices are elevated and likely to remain elevated. And those fuel prices work their way through into so many other prices that despite what the Fed is doing, without demand destruction by a weakening economy, um, I, I, don't, I don't think uh, we're, we're going to see inflation super under control for another 18 to 24 months. And the big one could come um, with how people vote. Like right now, um, it's looking like in the fall that they're going to go from a suit. The Democrats are going to go from a supermajority. They control the House. They essentially control the Senate with the 50-50 and they control the White House. Well, they can't lose the White House in the fall. They could easily lose the other two. And then you can't sit there and say, we're not going to approve pipelines. We're not going to renew drilling leases. We're not going to approve refineries. And again, it's not all on the government. Um, there are market forces that are keeping um, fuel prices high, but there's also some government sponsored solutions that if we get a flip to the other party who has historically been much more friendly to fossil fuels that we could get some correction there you could see something happen uh in the ukraine and that would be uh good in our favor the opposite would be dragging this out longer with with higher inflation levels got it so uh with that said uh for those of you who were listening last week i mentioned you know josh and i talked about a mid-year forecast um you know, for those of you who listen often, you know that there's a podcast outside of this called The Educated Home Buyer. We actually take this episode and we post it every Friday on that platform. For those of you who want to listen to it faster or don't have the time to listen to it now, you can do that at a later time. Uh, but if you go there, we we did a mid-year forecast, as I mentioned, and we talked about expectations kind of throughout the rest of the year. What, what we think is going to happen based on where the market is now, where we're coming off from. Um, you know, more inventory coming to the market, buyer demand slowing a bit. Um, you know, I typically update you guys on our local market here or my market. And, you know, today we got 3,639 active properties on the market in Orange County. We started the year, for those of you who follow, under 1,000, right? So we're up considerably. But the three-year average, you know, 2017 to 2019, prior to the pandemic, we would have about 66, 6,700 homes on the market during this time. So we're still at 50% of what we would have during that period of time, or just under 50% or just over 50% rather. Here in Huntington Beach, we got 227 as of today. Last week, we were 230, 240, somewhere in that ballpark. So there are still buyers out there, believe it or not, Josh. But with all of that said, you and I had a discussion earlier. You asked a question uh, because, you know, CoreLogic came out with with what they feel is their their annual uh, price growth appreciation year over year. Um, and then you you posed a question to me, where do I see prices going? Worst case scenario over the, the next year. And, and, you know, you mentioned yours. So I thought we'd just bring that to the show, right? Because our views are... Are, are similar uh, for the most part, but this is one of the things that I wouldn't say we disagree because there's a lot of agreement on it, but there, there's a little bit of disparity there. So let's start by talking about core logic. Core logic historically, um, whether they're conservative or um, aggressive on their their numbers and and where it came in, and then we'll we'll let you pose the question and we'll go from there. Well, in in 2020, um, core logic came out. At the advent of the breakout of COVID and said, we're going to have a 6% decrease in home values. Obviously couldn't have been more wrong. Um, you know, you, you'll forgive a bad forecast. I mean, it was the fog of war, right? No one really knew what was happening. Right. Um, we have a crazy year. They come out a year later in early 21 when they should be saying, hey, we were wrong. The market's hot. They're 3.4% going forward. So now we've had 
two really hot years, 35% total appreciation for the most part. And they say, we're going to have 5% over the next 12 months. It's another 5% growth. That so this would be isn't a- lagging, guys. This is going forward what they see in the market, looking at all the data currently. And they have as good a data as any. So it's a lot of what Jeb and I were talking about. We watch and read a lot of people. One of the guys that I've relied on extensively over the last 25 years is old school. He pulls up charts. He's looked at the same 15, 20 charts, updates them every month and looks at them. But there's no correlation among them other than him putting them on the wall and saying, see, they're lining up. Well, CoreLogic, um, Zillow in their data department, they have a lot of good data, a lot of good research and really strong algorithms and seeing real time what's happening. Homes coming on the market, asking prices, price reductions, closing prices, seeing all of this data and, and taking it all into account. And most of them are projecting positive numbers. You guys know if you hear every week, I have a condo out in Rancho Mirage and I get the little Zillow report every month and it says 92270 area code projected to go up 11% in the next 12 months. My brain looks at that and says, I've got a hard time believing we're going to see 11% appreciation out there next month. I may even have a hard time with uh, with CoreLogic's 5% appreciation. And the reason why Jeb and I accepted this conversation is if you go on YouTube, which is a cesspool of stupidity for the most part. And you, welcome to it, guys. You are welcome right to it. There. <laughs> thank, you, thank you for joining us. Um, you see our uh, video after video of rather unintelligent people um, misusing, misinterpreting, or just lying with data. Um, and they're all telling you that everything's going to fall off of a cliff. So what Jeb and I did, we threw up on his whiteboard, said, what, what's best case scenario for, uh, for the market in the next uh, 12 months? We said, probably zero to, to 5%. Maybe it goes as high as seven or 10, but somewhere zero to five. Um, said, okay. And then you have your, your next, well, I, I think Jeb, you can see your board there. Was it, was we say the top one was five, a five to 10% increase, kind of like where core logic to Zillow, yep. what yep. they're saying. So you so said 5% plus, plus, plus or minus. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. So then, and then zero to five is, is a reasonable likely case, no growth to somewhere around 5% and then zero to 5% down mm -hmm. and then more than 5% down. The crazy people that are telling you the markets are going to drop 20% and you're going to have an amazing buying opportunity next year. Um, so in looking at that, Jeb, where did, where did you come in among those four? I came in, in in the third tier. So I, I think there's a, a potential for somewhere between a, a zero to 5% decline in home prices. And the reason I feel like that is right. Being an agent out there, boots on the ground, I'm seeing, you know, some slowdown in certain price points, price points that I thought should be hot. Um, you know, this is the first time in a long time where I'm getting calls about properties that people have seen saying that they're submitting an offer or they're going to submit an offer and then I don't get it. And then I follow up with, you know, the agent maybe a day or two later, Hey, what's going on? Well, a client got cold feet or a client doesn't want to get in a multiple offer situation or a client's still working on pre-approval or whatever. Right. Whereas the last two years you had to be quick in making these offers. So homes are, are sitting a little bit longer um, in some price points, but at the same time, you know, I, I've got a, an offer in on a property today that the property's been on the market for some period of time. And now there's all of a sudden three offers on it. And so it's, it's hard to really gauge what is going on, but there's, there's a shift. I mean, there is a slowdown that's real. Uh, I just don't know what it does to home prices. I mean, I, I, we've discussed home prices are sticky to the upside. That's why I don't think it's more than say 5%, but I do think there is room for some, some pullbacks, you know, just in certain areas, just based on, 
you know, how things are are priced initially and then them sitting a little bit longer and sellers having to get more aggressive to do things. And so it's tough to say, but I, I again, I'm in the camp of, you know, zero to 5% potentially going down. Going, going down. And, yep. and I feel like we're probably going to have a period of lower growth. You know, I, when we say zero to five, 3% is a, a solid percent and a half below the long-term averages. Um, it would take many years of 3% to get us back to that 4.6, 4 4.5% average annual growth based off of the last two years that we had. Um, we've covered ad nauseum why home prices are sticky to the upside, the transaction cost of getting it out of your home, um, the fact that you still need to put a roof over your head, the fact that you have an emotional attachment to your home. It is not a pure investment. Um, then we go into the fact that people are in a really good position. Homeowners are in really good positions. Uh, they are going to hunker down and not bring homes to market. And there will always be uh, folks who want to buy and it is the right time in their life to buy. Um, rates are going to moderate. Are they gonna go back to where they were and give that big tailwind to home prices? Absolutely not. Um, but they're also not gonna be a gale force wind in the face of, of market prices. There's going to be options and opportunities. So um, I, I would expect low growth, zero, zero to 5% somewhere in that range. The fun part is um, we're gonna be here every week and we're gonna go through it. We're gonna watch it unfold in real time and see where we're right and where we're wrong. Well, that's what the, the the people want. For two years, they've been saying every year, Jeb, I hope you're here when, you know, next year when the market crashes. Well, guys, two years later, I'm still here and still making the same videos about the market still doing the same things. Why? Because that's what's actually happening in the market. So, um, you know, and, and if I'm wrong, I, I have no problem uh, admitting that. Uh, but at this point, I don't think I'm you know, I'm going to be just because the the data doesn't point in that direction. But we talk about it all the time. Doesn't mean it's a great time to buy a house right now. There are times when it's not a great time to buy. Now, it's not a great time to buy for the reasons that we've talked about many, many times. Doesn't mean you shouldn't buy. It just means that if you have a shorter term time horizon, if you're not looking, you know, you don't have the savings, you're stretching, yourself, it's not a great time. Because there is an opportunity or a chance that the market does move sideways and or pull back, you know, 5% or so, like I mentioned uh, a moment ago. And at which point you have to sell if you put a lower down payment, you could be in a position where you don't have the equity. So these are things that you need to think about. Um, and really to plug the the podcast one more time is today we filmed, uh, you know, or filmed, we recorded uh, the video or Jesus we, we recorded the podcast on can you time the market? Is it a good idea? Can you do it? Who is, you know, who should time the market? So if you're wondering about timing the market, trying to buy low, sell high, whatever your your strategy is, listen to that. It's a 20-minute episode, kind of dives into our thoughts on it. But Josh, one more thing before we start diving into some question. There was this particular article that came out today. Um, I sent it to you earlier, but I thought it was kind of worth addressing just because it kind of supports us to some extent, which I don't know that um, that's really what they were intending or how people look at it. But let's let's take a look at this article right here. So the title is, here's the loophole that makes the U.S. housing market more wobbly than it appears. <clears throat> and then you go down and read the, the opening paragraph. And it basically says, the weighted average FICO credit score in the first quarter for a single family home was a sterling 748. So considerably higher than the 681 back in the in the housing 
um, debacle of, of 2008, if you will. The origination loan to value was 71%. So that means the majority of people were putting 29% at least down to buy a house. There were just 4% of homes with a loan to value above 95%. So for all of you out there saying FHA loans are going to crash the market, only 4% of the people out there got a loan that that had a that didn't put at least 5% down. Okay. So just you know, it's something to point out. Uh, the percentage of buyers with a debt to income ratio above 43% was 29%. So you can look at that however you want. Uh, but that doesn't like the days of no income, no job, no assets. They're comparing that to 2008. But here's their loophole, so to speak. So this this particular blogger, if you will, did a, a an a anonymous case blogger, an anonymous, an anonymous blogger. He leaves so much in his data. Did a did a case sample in in Boston area. So depending on where you are, you know, you can take that how you want. But um, his whole thing is that the if if the market reverted to a more normal trend more normal, um, which over the last 60 years is 4 to 5% appreciation per year. The average loan to value on a sample of jumbo loans that were tracked surges to 92% from about 75, from about 70%. Okay. So that's what it says in this area right here. So Josh, if you only have 8% loan to value in your property after this sample size is done and the market falls apart, you're still in a position where you're not underwater for one which kind of supports the idea of um, no crash, no uh, foreclosures really coming to the market. You know, it, it's not great, but at the same time, it doesn't mean a bunch of distressed sales, right? It, if you have 8% in your property, you have enough to sell it and walk away without having to do um, a short sell and or foreclose on the property. So what are your thoughts when you read this, Josh? It's it's just garbage. It, it truly is garbage from someone that's not in the industry and doesn't have any understanding. So leave it up there because there's another yeah. fun little little part there. So what he's saying is, it, if in a worst case scenario, because a, a return to trend would be what a 15, 20%. If, if you're trying to take a trend from 16 yeah. when homes were going up in that four to five percent and you just had 35% in two years, it's a 20% decrease. So your worst case scenario would get you to a position where a distressed seller could still put a sign in his yard and sell the home for, for what it's worth. So unlikely to happen, even if it did, it would not lead to a large distressed uh, amount of properties, um, which is what it takes to see large scale decreases. Um, so if you don't have upside down home buyers that have to sell or that have to hand their home back to the bank, you don't see big wholesale decreases to prices. Now, the fun part here, Jeb, the next, uh, the next paragraph says, the loophole in the lending standards for this cycle appears to have been that home appraisals were either unable to accurately account for the outlandish price appreciation occurring in the market or were simply roundly ignored given the fact that borrowers came to the table with 20 to 30% down payments and had good at credit histories. Jeb, have you ever done a transaction where the the appraisal was just a formality where the appraiser just went out there, rubber stamped it, said, you're fine. Your guy's good. We're not going to look at that one this close. Or that the underwriter didn't review the appraisal when it came back and said, this doesn't measure this. This is fine. Whatever you put in here, we don't have to follow the generally accepted uh, appraisal practices. The reason why appraisals were being waived was because the appraisals were not in any way the problem. The market was saying, this is the value of the home. 
as there are more than one buyer willing to pay that price and to pay above and beyond what the appraised value is. So whoever our anonymous blogger here is makes the same mistake of saying that the market value is what a home appraises for. An appraisal is a value dictated by generally accepted practices that are issued by the, the appraisal industry. And they're, they're good, they're there for a reason, but they are particularly bad when home prices rapidly decelerate or appreciate. You have volatility in home prices, they're not great. And what happened in this case is plenty of strong buyers were competing for properties and paying above and beyond the appraised value. So if you don't know that, I can't take seriously your analysis of the mortgage market if you're so far removed from it that you don't know what was happening in the actual market. Um, so long way of saying, it, it, it's nice clickbait, like a lot of the stuff that we see, um, and it got us to click and we read it and we're dumber for having read it. <laughs> Uh, with that said, guys, um, the reason you're here is to have some questions answered. So we're going to start diving into those. I know we don't have a lot of questions at the moment, uh, but I'm sure they'll start flooding in here as we stop talking. So let's address some of them to start with, Josh. You've got. Can we, uh, can we start with my favorite section of the show, the rule of thumb section? Um, Dan Spoiler offers that 14 days with no offer. That's 10% overvalued. So you, you just do a 10% price cut, Jeb, if you've got 14 days on a listing with no offer? No, no. Um, I'm not sure what market that works in. Uh, doesn't it work was, here. So. It was a quote from a realtor. A realtor gave him this rule of thumb. And uh, then we had a okay. follow-up. Uh, again, rules of thumb, crazy thoughts here. Um, Sal pipes up and says, no, it's 30% overpriced. I don't uh, know in the last five years that I've seen a home 30% overpriced. I'm sure there has been one out there. Um, I don't know that I've actually seen one. So go go back to your experience, Jeb. What you were telling us earlier here in the show yep. that you have a couple homes that no, nothing, no activity, and then multiple offers after 14 days. Did you have to do a 10% price cut to get it? No, no. Um, you know, the one that we're looking at, it was priced at a million five. They lowered the price to a million four fifty. Um, so what's that? That's 3%, 3%. Drop on on price, and now they have three offers. So we're just one of three, um, and so we're back basically at at the asking price, and it could even go over. Um, you know, so no, just because a home sits doesn't mean that it's. I mean, it could mean it's overpriced. Could mean something's wrong with it. It also could mean that you know that seasonality is playing a part. Buyers are out on vacation. Buyers are done. You know, um, taking a break from from the market and come back and decide they want to make an offer. You just don't know the reason. But just because a home sits on the market doesn't necessarily mean it's overpriced. I've sold a handful of homes. I mean, hell, even in the middle of the chaos, when things were selling with multiple offers going way above the asking, I had a couple properties sit for 20 days. We ended up lowering the price and then with, with the offers coming in, ended up selling for more than we originally had it priced for. So I, there's no rule of thumb. You just got to feel the market, see what the market's doing and, and make an offer that you feel comfortable with and, and see where it goes. I mean, here's a perfect example. Property sitting on the market here in Huntington Beach, uh, where I am, listed for $750. In my eyes, it's too high, right? There was one that sold for $700,000 same model, whatever, a couple months back. I don't remember the exact time frame, but this year 
but um, earlier in the year. And so I looked at the 750 and go, told my clients said, listen, it's been sitting on the market. Um, you know, things have changed since then. Interest rates are up. Uh, Affordability is playing a part. You know, you can't come in now and, and price it 50,000 higher than that property, in my opinion. And so my clients wanted to make an offer at 675. Right. That's not super crazy. It's 25,000 less than than the one that sold back sometime earlier this year. Guess what? They didn't respond to us. They they felt the offer wasn't um, reasonable. So we got no response. So for those of you out there, sellers or think that sellers are desperate and they're just going to take anything. In this case, they didn't. Right. They told us to basically pound sand. And so as a buyer, you've got to kind of gauge that out and see how your market's doing. Right. Real estate's local. What does that mean? It means that my market might be acting a little bit differently than your market, right? Demand in my market might be different than demand in your market. Even within my market, there might be pockets that are in demand or out of demand or properties that are, you know, um, favorable versus ones that aren't. You know, we talk about this every week, guys, but there's no there's no hard, fast rule that says, you know, if a property doesn't sell in 14 days, it's overpriced. no, no. I think the average days on the market here in Orange County as a whole is like 54 days right now, right? That's still a hot seller's market. Now, it sounds crazy because properties were selling in five days a year ago, but we're just getting back to more normal terms and it's going to it's going to grow. That, that 54 is going to be 70 or 80 um, by the end of the year. Am I worried? No, it's you've got to know the market and know how to deal with it. So- that's a crazy one, Jeb, that I, I like to point out is we're coming off of two years where every home was desirable. The, the, the worst looking guy or girl at the dance was desirable and was getting multiple people asking them to dance. This is not, um, not abnormal. We usually, so you and I talked about my neighborhood. Um, we have three homes. It's one of the ones that, that you're interested in. And these people did a bitch and facelift on it, like curb appeals, some of the nicest in the neighborhood. Interior was redone. It's got a nice pool. They are not going to have to do a price reduction. We had another one that's a nice home, but dated um, late mid to late 90s renovation. So it's not gross by any stretch. You'd be happy to move into it. Um, and they just did a price reduction. We have another one that just came back on the market. Very similar. Nice home, but it's nothing fantastic and it needs some work. So the the beautiful girls are going to get all the attention in this market. And where you fall on that spectrum from there is going to tell you. And what's the right price? These are all similar similar square footage homes in the exact same neighborhood. So granted, um, they're gonna have different amenities and different locations within the community, but it's, it's what you're seeing. This is, this is normal. It is not normal for every house, no matter how pretty, how ugly, how well located, how poorly located, what amenities, what school districts to all get multiple offers. So this is That's normal. It. Right. And, and and when you made the comment earlier that a year and a half ago, every property, all these properties were desirable, I, I understand what you're saying, but it was just a lack of options, right? They got buyers to make that that offer, right? Buyers wanted to take advantage of the market. Buyers thought prices were going to continue. Buyers needed, you know, maybe that particular property for whatever reason. Therefore, the only one, they made an offer and, and, and got it accepted and ended up closing or whatever. Less of that happening in this market, right? Buyers now have choices. If you got the nice interior location versus the one that backs to the freeway, and even if you've got to pay more for the one, and it's a better opportunity long term, right? You, 
you can't just always think of the property today. You've got to think of the future of that property and, and family needs. And, you know, if you do have to sell it, what's more desirable? Well, those are things that buyers are now because the, you know, there's more options and opportunity. Buyers are taking a little bit of a time. They're taking a step back and saying, okay, is that the right one? Maybe not, right? I mean, and, and so that's that's the reason. Um, a, a really good example. I've got a condo uh, here in Orange County. It's in what would be a high fire zone, okay? Because of, you know, we have a lot of fires in California. Um, over the last two years, that thing would have sold instantly just because of the price point in the, you know, in the area that it's in. Now, because there's a couple more on the market, buyers have more options in that price point outside of that area. They're taking a step back going, do I really want to consider something in a fire area? You know, that sort of thing is, is what's starting to play on buyers' minds, and rightfully so. So just keep that in mind out there. Um, we'll go with one more from Dan, and then we'll move on to other people. He says, Jebs, 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 CDs or tapes? Wow. Um, I'm more of a Spotify guy. I don't know that I, uh, you know, I, who who has tapes or CDs who, who these are, days? Who are you kidding? You have no. REO Speedwagon 8-tracks. <laughs> yeah, that's it. Um, yeah, I haven't bought music in like, I, it's been a long time since the uh, original uh, where you had, I had iTunes. I mean, I think it was like probably the last thing I bought however long ago. Um, but I know it was, a you know, a, 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 not a real question. But anyhow, um, Tim, Tim says locked in our FHA 30-year mortgage yesterday at 5.625%. So congrats to you, Tim. The, the thing with locking interest rates is, once you lock it, move on. Don't worry about Josh talking about interest rates today or you know what what the market's doing tomorrow. The only thing I would say is is make sure if you're going to lock a rate, you, you have a couple quotes prior to, to to making that decision. And even that you've made that decision now, it's okay to talk to somebody else to see if rates have changed. But don't get caught up in in the world, especially if you're in 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 escrow. If you're in escrow, just move forward for the most part, as long as you've done your homework up front, Josh. Anything you want to add on that one? Well, out, out of context, there's there's a million things that could go into this. If that's a 600 credit score, could be a great rate. If it's a 90-day lock, it could be a great rate. So again, out of context, it's hard to say good, bad, and different. Um, hard to say what you're paying. They could be giving you a big lender credit. They could be charging you very little in fees. So again, if you're happy with it, and it's locked in, and it's lower than what it was uh, a week, 10 days ago, um, take the money and run. Be happy with it. Got it. So if you like it, lock it. If you like it, lock it. Yes, that's that's the saying. Um, and then move on uh, and and stop worrying about it. Um, with that being said, if you need to get in touch with Josh, you need to get in touch with a lender anywhere in the country, there is a link that will scroll across the bottom. Go to that website, fill out a couple things, and you will be connected. Uh, Kim said, Josh, thank you for the phone call today. So... Josh, so that's, that's what happens when you fill out that form. Yeah, exactly. There you go. Um, Alex, I underwrite mortgage loans, and I honestly am so surprised people are still buying in this overpriced market. Inflation, inflation is running reserves dry. So, uh, Josh, how do you want how do you want to answer that one? Broad blanket statements. So yeah. you are applying one set of criteria to everyone. Um, you know, Jeb referred me a buyer yesterday. These people have lots of money lots of income, very stable jobs, because there's very few people that do what they do. Um, they want to own a home and they're getting relocated across the country. 
of course they're going to buy a house. They don't want to be renters. Um, and that's just one example. There's probably 27 different examples. Is some of this true? Um, is inflation or other things going in the economy running reserves dry? For some people, yes. For a lot of people, no. Some people are big savers. My dad was the most frugal dude in the world. He was a school teacher. He looked at his bank account. It was a lot better than a lot of people that made twice as much as him. So it doesn't really come down to what people are making. It's what they've saved, what they spend, all of those things. So we clearly have less buyers than we had last year. Purchase applications are down 17%. Can anyone deny that? I mean, that's a fact, that's a real number. The Mortgage Bankers Association puts it out every week. So we have less buyers, but are people still wanting to buy? People want to own a home. If you take away all the other factors, all other things being equal, people want to own homes. So those who are still in a position to do so are going to do so when it's right for them in their life. It goes back to Jeb saying, hey, is it always a good time to buy? No, it's not always a good time to buy. Is now a great time to buy? No, because we can look in the near past, one year ago, two years ago, were much better times to buy with lower prices, lower interest rates. But if you didn't buy then, you don't have a time machine. You can't go back to them. So you have to analyze for your life, is today the right time for me to buy a house? And there are still a lot of people that do that. And people may find this hard to believe, but you go back to 2008, the year after everything fell out and home prices dropped 50% in many communities throughout the country, but California especially, we still had 50% of the buyers that we had the year before. So 50% of people from the year before still said, I wanna own a home, this is the right time. Now, granted, they're looking at going, hey, these things are on sale, they're 50% right. off. No, for sure. But we still had a lot of buyers in the middle of, of the biggest downturn in real estate ever. So there are always going to be buyers. We're not gonna to get to a point where there's 20% of the buyers that there were last year. Um, you know, the volume will go down. We're going to see a lower number because it makes sense for less people, but it still makes sense for a lot of people. And guess what? You're still, if you're in certain price points, you're still going to be competing against investment banks or, or, you know, these conglomerates, if you will, that are buying property. I read an article yesterday of another one, you know, that's put together $25 million in a fund. And, and guess what? They're looking to buy rentals. Why? Because rental demand is high. So you can either be an owner and own a property or you can be a renter and pay somebody else's mortgage. And 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 it's okay if you're the renter and paying somebody if that if that's the right time for you or if you're working towards home ownership, don't get don't beat yourself up. But, you know, there's a reason that homeowners have uh, you know, 44 times greater net worth. It's because home ownership it creates that opportunity. So, um bullish on housing, you know, are we going through some some hiccups and some bumps? Sure. Sure we are. But that's okay as long as you have the, the foundation in place. So uh, with that being said, you know, another comment she made, a recession is coming. We're in a recession, okay? There's going to be savings drained. There's going to be people that have a hard time during this time. There's going to be less money spent on discretion, you know, less discretionary spending, less people going out to eat, less people doing things. That's That's to be expected during a recession. The question is, you know, who does that affect more? First-time home buyers, or does it affect the move-up buyer and, and the luxury buyer? Well, it, it might affect everyone depending on where you sit, but typically it's it, if you it's the lower end of the spectrum that that it affects the most. And and you know it's it's hard to say how it'll play out, but those that have down payments, those that um, you know that are looking to buy now, and 
you know, are buying for the right reasons, maybe there's an opportunity in the future, maybe at a, a, a lower price, 5%, like I said earlier, if, if that happens, or maybe it goes up another 3 4% in your buyer. Either way, you got to make the right decision for you. Don't worry about what Josh and I are saying. Worry about, you know, whether it's the right time in your life. So with that said, uh, clip some easy. It's been a while. Um, thinking out loud, if home prices keep rising or stay elevated, is this a national security issue? Lack of affordability can lead to high crime rates in many cities. Thoughts? So I don't know that na national security is an issue, but I will say in recessionary times, when, when things are tough, not a lot of money out there, people do resort to criminal activity. Um, you know, we already see some of this craziness here in California with regards to, you know, we, well, California is a, a whole different animal with people going in and, and doing um, these, these sprees kind of as a group. Um, and jewelry shops and stealing or whatever. Does that increase during bad times? Sure, it does. Is it a national security issue? I don't think so. Um, but, you know, again, we're we're headed into a time that's not going to be as great as the last couple of years with regards to the amount of savings, the amount of um, just cash in the system just because of, of you know, the government's not giving it to you anymore, or at least for now. So, um, Josh, your thoughts on that one? There are a lot of issues that come with low affordability. The, the good thing that we can say is that time has always fixed this. So we went from uh, affordability in California dropped to 17 percent. In, in 2007, it was the lowest level on record at that point. Right now, before rates dropped, we had got back to 17% again. It peaked at 55%. Home prices dropped. We got a few years further down the line and, and incomes increased. So five years later, we're back where 55% of homes uh, with median income could afford a median priced home. So it is self-correcting. Markets are self-correcting. So that's what we're sitting here saying, what does the correction look like? What's different now? Um, the big difference is so much equity in homes at such low interest rates um, that we've locked a lot of sellers in and we don't really have a recipe for uh, a large uh, number of forced sales. And then in certain parts of the country, we don't see this in California, but in certain parts of the country, we've had institutional buyers take a lot of the inventory out of the market. So um, demand is down because of low affordability and um, supply is also down at the same time. So we're keeping sort of a supply demand balance, which will be a support under prices. But over time, um, affordability corrects itself and more people are able to buy homes. And uh, it's natural, it's normal, and it's our hope and expectation going forward. There you go. Good stuff. Um, let's see here. Falsificationism. I'm a liberal social scientist and work with data every day, but early on, it was easy to fall for bad advice based on doomsday charts. It takes a lot to learn why they are misleading. True. Yeah. I mean, I, I think, again, I mean, Josh and I were talking about this earlier, that there are channels out there. There are people out there that throw data out there. And if you just look at the numbers and the way they interpret the numbers, it can seem like the world's falling apart. But what I can tell you is that some of these people have been doing that for two years while the market's appreciating, while there's multiple offers, while, you know, you couldn't get an offer accepted, but the world was ending because of the way the data, in my opinion, was being manipulated. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I think that can be said for a lot of things is, is, is 
that, Josh. Now, what, what are your thoughts on that, Josh? And in, in, in the conversation that we had earlier, somewhere similar to this, actually. Here is uh, something that I would love. So you're right that it does take a lot to learn and figure out. <laughs> Jeff, my, my stream yard went crazy. Okay, there we go. So it is there. This book is, a, is more of a pamphlet. It's 50 years old, 60 years old, How to Lie with Statistics. And it basically teaches you what salespeople and marketers do with numbers to mislead you. Um, and it goes through just a number of, of logical fallacies and the way uh, figures can be presented. And if you go through, most of these YouTube channels are so basic that these are people with, if they're lucky, 100 IQ trying to explain things they don't understand and make a point or a case with them with numbers that don't say what they think they're saying. That doesn't mean that everyone that disagrees with us is wrong. Jeff and I had a conversation yesterday. A guy I really respect sends over a big email and I'm looking at it going, wow, I disagree with that strongly, but I know that guy knows his data and I need to look at what he's looking at and dig into it because that's honest, fair, and actual data. Um, but check check this out because falsificationism is correct. It is hard to tell how these people are lying to you. That cute little book right there will, will go a long ways towards um, showing you uh, the, the ways that people try to mislead with numbers. Well, well, here's the thing. People don't know what they don't know, right? And so when you're listening and you have some sort of bias towards whatever it is, because honestly, that's a lot of it, right? We all have biases and we all lean towards what we want to hear um, for the most part, because that's what supports our beliefs. And so in some of the stuff you get the data and it, it says what you want it to say. Therefore, they don't need to explain it. They don't need to understand it. They just throw it out there with the idea that, hey, this supports the agenda, supports what I'm trying to get across. Therefore, it is. And people take it at that. And Josh made the statement, well, you know, People know that it's not accurate. I, I disagree entirely. I think, again, people don't know what that it's not accurate because they're not reading all the data. They're just looking at one piece of the data. And it's really easy to make an argument based on one piece of data versus, you know, um, a plethora of data. So in anyway, in, in easy, um, what you're saying is 100% accurate. So anybody out there, just understand that uh, it's not one piece. It's a lot of data, and you got to understand it in order to figure out where you are. So uh, let's see. Ultimate Bargain says median price rises when the affordable homes are scooped up. Median means middle, not average. As the lower priced affordable homes are removed from the market, then median naturally rises. True. That's, again, an accurate statement. And why median is a very tough number to look at because if you have more prices sell on the lower side, um, that it, that median is going to come down. So it works both ways. But as home prices have gotten more expensive, obviously numbers are going to reflect higher um, for that median just because you've got more people making um, uh, purchases at higher levels. So again, just a, another statement, not a comment there. Uh, it's, it's one of the things, Jebs, that we've talked about before. I don't like looking at median figures. Median is distorted in a down market. It drops more as more low-priced homes sell. Mm -hmm. um, as we get into a stronger market and there's more move-up buyers, it goes up. It doesn't tell you what's moving in the market. So we talk about um, Kay Schiller that's now owned by CoreLogic and CoreLogic being off. It's the gold standard of, of numbers, paired sales analysis. They're not looking at what uh, half of the homes selling above and below us 
certain point, they're looking at the same home selling over time and seeing what those percentage changes were doing. So know the data that you're looking at, know what it tells you and what it doesn't. Median is, is one of the worst figures you can look at. Good stuff. Uh, Alfredo is saying, question, my real estate broker claims the lender he works with can get us a 4.8 interest rate for a 30-year fixed. Does that seem real? 740 credit score in Orange County. So Josh, can you get a 4.8% 30-year fixed interest rate today? For well-qualified borrowers, I absolutely have access to that. What I will say is um, those are portfolio loans. Your stuff that's going to Fannie Freddie is much higher than that. So your portfolio loans are going to have a little bit more restrictions, um, be a little bit harder to qualify for. And most lenders, most brokers don't have access to them. So the thing that I would say is whenever someone tells you, hey, they can get you X rate, well, your realtor doesn't know anything about your qualifications. Unless you brought in pay stubs, W-2, showed them a credit report, him quoting you a number is silly. Jeb would never give you an interest rate. He would say, talk to Josh. He's going to go through and give you the accurate numbers. Um, 4.8, I mean, if you wanted, you could pay a couple points on a Fannie Mae loan and get 4.8%. Most people don't want to do that. And when one of the questions here we're going to go through in a minute is, um, when does it make sense to pay points? How do you know? What's the calculation that you do? There's over 40 factors that go into quoting an interest rate, an accurate interest rate. So I would be dubious of a realtor giving you an accurate Who wants number. an accurate rate? <laughs> yeah. What yeah. are you doing? Uh, no kidding. Um, so 317 people watching, almost an hour in. Ask that you hit the thumbs up. Feel free to like and subscribe to the channel if you like real information um, and not fear-based content. So we appreciate you doing that. And then also, if you want to have a conversation with myself or Josh, you're outside of our market area, I will throw another link up here on the screen that will get you in touch with us um, to do that. So there's a link for that. And then lastly, I will throw up uh, another link on the screen here in just a moment uh, where you can get in touch with a real estate agent, uh, lender anywhere in the country and have a conversation if you're thinking about buying a home or just want to get pre-qualified or just see where you're at. So uh, with that, Josh, let's take a look here at another question. We had a, a, um, a good one from Golden Age Niners. It says, my wife is changing careers out of teaching. We are thinking of pulling money out of her CalSTRS retirement, um, which is essentially her, her pension, uh, to increase our down payment. Any downsides to doing this, Josh? My understanding was CalSTRS and CalPERS will not allow you to to take money out um, unless so making and this may be the change changing careers out of teaching. Um, so it's a defined benefit plan. I think you can pull it out. Um, I would assume that it would be similar to a 401k right. where there's going to be a penalty uh, and taxes with that. So. You've heard us talk about it here on the show. I'm not a huge fan of that. Um, it's usually a 10% penalty. So if you have $100,000 in there, it's now $90,000. At the end of the year, you're going to pay taxes on that. That's $90,000 on top of the rest of the income that you make. So it's going to push you to a higher tax bracket. Probably somewhere between 30 and 45% of that now goes away. So 90 less 30 gets you $63,000. You just burn $37,000 for a bigger down payment. I guess if it's the only possible way to make it happen, um, you could justify it. Uh, I would rather see a lower down payment versus tapping something like that to get access to it. Yeah. And what I would say with that too, talk to an accountant, talk to a CPA, somebody licensed professional and have them look at, you know, that defined uh, benefit plan, how the impacts they're going to know 
how it'll affect you and all that good stuff. So, um, and then you can make the decision whether or not you want to do it, but typically not the best move, right? So Jeb, I was expecting like a Jerry Rice picture or something with golden age Niners. That's Debo. So does it just mean soon to be former Niners? Is that what a golden age Niner is? Is a soon to be former Niner? You can put him up as your, your image. Maybe, maybe that's him, you know? Maybe he's looking for to, to maybe it's Debo, Debo looking for yeah. some info. I don't yeah, think Debo's married. So, um, sorry if this might. So Ivy's asking a question here. No stupid questions, but I wanted to know if you can explain how you get underwater when you when your home depreciates a little. Sorry if you explained this topic earlier. So we haven't really talked about this, but let's say for example you bought a house for a hundred thousand dollars, and that would be really nice, wouldn't it? Uh, and you put three and a half percent down. You did an FHA loan. So essentially you financed 97,500, but even then maybe because of the funding fee on top of that, you actually financed about 98,500, somewhere in that ballpark. Um, and if you don't understand that, we can talk about that too. Um, uh, but so now what happens if you're in a slowing market, home prices move sideways, right? And, and don't necessarily go down, but they don't go up. Um, and, and you need to sell your property for whatever reason. Well, typically you're going to hire a real estate agent, that real estate agent, depending on what they charge is going to charge somewhere between, I don't know, five, 6%, seven, you know, it depends on where you are. So now you've got to pay that you've only got about 1%, um, in your property, assuming you haven't paid down the mortgage on that property. And so you're essentially upside down with the selling cost to sell that property. Now, another example would be, let's say you bought a property for a hundred thousand dollars you put 10% down, you're financing $90,000 and the market takes the crap, you know, like it did in 08, not expected, not what I expect to happen, but say it did. There's an opportunity where, Hey, homes are selling for much less than you purchased it for. So in order for you to sell your home, you've got to sell it at a value comparable to what your, your neighbors are doing, at which point you could be underwater on that property with selling costs, with what you owe, all of that stuff. So that's how you get upside down. Now, here's the catch. If you own that property and you bought it at 100,000, you put 10 again, 10% down and you finance 90,000 and the home the market takes a crap and and goes down by 50%, right? And goes down to $50,000. If you just hold that property, continue making your mortgage payment, nothing changes. Nothing changes unless you need to sell that property because we know over time home prices tend to go back up. Um, you know, we've talked about it many, many times on this show. 50, 60 year uh, average is 4.7%, right? There's a reason that people bought homes for much less back in the 60s and they're worth 10, 20 times what they were back then um, because of that appreciation long-term. So holding real estate is important. That's how wealth is gained uh, for many, many people out there. So there's less of a concern with a, a market appreciating or pulling back unless you've got to do something with that property. So Josh, anything you want to add on that one? No, we, we actually, I was on a, a VA live um, with a couple of VA loan experts and we kind of talked about this. It was, the topic was what to expect in your first year of home ownership and wanted to point out to those VA buyers, it's really the last zero down loan program. So you're essentially underwater the day you walk into that property as a VA buyer with zero down. You need five to 7%, sometimes 8% to be able to sell without writing a check. So um, it doesn't take much uh, with a three and a half percent down FHA, same thing. You're essentially underwater. So if the market dips anymore, you're not able to sell without writing a check or getting the lender to accept less than the, the full balance. 
Got it. Got it. Good stuff. Um, let's see here. Uh, Chris, a real estate agent in South Florida, is basically seeing home builders start to offer incentives in some places. Huge leading indicator, in my opinion. Do you see this in SoCal? So um, I haven't really dealt with a lot of new construction recently. Uh, there's not really a lot in my my little pocket here. It's, it's further out in Orange County. Uh, but yeah, this is typical for a slower time in the market, right? When the market's booming, um, you know, they can, they can basically cut the incentives. They can decide not to work with agents. Um, and, and if they do offer super low commissions and as the market changes, guess what? We're their best friends again, right? Because they want us to bring in buyers. This is normal for this time, um, in the market with more inventory coming buyer demand slowing a little bit. They want us to bring in buyers. Therefore they're offering more incentives. So I don't know that that's a red flag. I think it's more back to what a normal market would look like versus the craziness that we've seen over the last year uh, or a couple years. So again, it, it's all relative to the market that you're in. Um, I know Miami is, has been a booming market and, um, you know, it's, it's, it's as, as the market changes, they're going to have to do things to entice people to, uh, to come in no different than, than really any seller. The only difference is they have multiple properties to sell versus, you know, a seller typically having one to sell. Uh, so Lady T Josh is asking, should I sell my $1.8 million house or short-term rent it or long-term rent it? So the question, lady, lady, so the question, lady, is that, you know, the whether you're selling it or renting it or whatever, you know, if you're selling it, sell and do what? What are you going to do with the proceeds from that house? Are you going to short, re- short, short-term rent it or long-term rent it? Yeah. I mean, are you, I mean, if you do decide to sell it, are you going to put that money into another piece of real estate? Are you going to hold on to it and sit on the sidelines and and you know and wait for the market to pull back? Or are you going to reinvest it? Have to do a ten thirty one or or something like that? Those are the things you have to consider, and those are things that we can't really talk about. Are you going to have capital gains that you have to pay? Right? If you're married, you only get five hundred thousand dollars in capital gains. So depending on where you bought that property, there might be a chance there that you have to pay taxes on it. Do you want to pay taxes on it? Um, and if you decide to, if it's been a primary home and you decide to rent it. How long are you going to rent it for? Because at some point, you know, you only get two of the last five years of that home to, you know, being a primary home to be able to avoid those capital gains. So at some point, if you, you know, are past that as a rental, um, you'll lose that opportunity to get some of the capital gains. So something you need to consider there with a long-term rental. I mean, the short-term rental is, you know, those are opportunities to make really good money, um, but there are costs involved with doing it. Is there an association involved? Is the market where you are? Does the city allow it? Um, do you want to be somebody that has a short-term rental? Do you want to deal with that? I mean, there's a lot going on in this question, and I don't think it's as easy as uh, just saying, yes, you should sell it, or yes, you should do one or the other, or no, you shouldn't. You got to take all this stuff into account. Um, so make sure you, you, know, you have a professional that you're working with, and they should be able to guide you through that question. Josh. Is a DTI of 41% okay for an FHA loan? On the front end, so front end ratio is the housing to income ratio. So just your principal interest, taxes, insurance, and association dues, if any, can go as high as a 47% with an automated approval. 
Um, and they can go, the total debt to income when we add in student loans, credit cards, autos can go as high as 57%. But both of those ratios require an automated approval. Um, it's gonna be lower if you need a manual approval. So for most borrowers with a 640 and above credit score, we will see those uh, approved fairly easily. So 41 is definitely within the, the range of what we see regularly uh, on an FHA loan. If you have a lower credit score, it may be more questionable. So you definitely wanna go through it with a lender. Good stuff. Um, George, George came in and said, thank you for the advice. Even though I ended up paying 10% over the asking price, I am happy with the house and we'll be moving this weekend. I am in Bristow, Virginia. So I don't know Bristow, um, but you know, I, all I'm hearing about is price cuts and sellers giving away property. And, and here we are with George paying over the asking. So obviously it's not across the board guys, but George, congratulations. We appreciate you being here. Appreciate the support. We expect to see you continually for the rest of your life. Um, Andrew has a good question. Josh, my lender's waiving the appraisal. We kind of talked about this a little bit earlier on the home I'm buying. I put 30% down. Is that because of the amount I put down that they're waiving that? Or are they looking at algorithms seeing that there's a value there plus the fact that he's a good borrower? All of the above. So it we can't say you're putting 30% down, you qualify for this. We have to get your loan application, put accurate information through the automated underwriting system. It's going to look at Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac's database of recent closed sales, including the appraisals. Uh, about 10 years ago, the appraisals switched from being sent to us in just a PDF. They're also sent in a data file. That data file goes into Fannie and Freddie's systems and they use that algorithm to say, hey, with this down payment in this neighborhood, with this price trend and history, and this specific borrower with their credit score, their debt to income ratio, are we comfortable with this? You know, it's it's pretty predictable, but there are times when we don't get them and you're like, why in the world is this borrower not getting it? Uh, but on purchases with 30% down, high credit scores, low debt to income ratio, it's not uncommon. Good stuff. Good stuff. So we got some good questions tonight, guys. Going to try to get to them here. Um, I mean, these, some of these are a little bit tough to answer. So I'm going to get to some ones that we can answer quickly and then we'll kind of save some of the, the other ones for later. Uh, property taxes are being updated and revalued on this appreciation, which increases your property taxes. Will the payment readjust uh, in year 2024? So Depending on what state you're in, it's done a little bit differently, right? I just got my tax bill here in California, and guess what? It went up 2%. Why? Only 2% when the market's appreciated 35% over the last two years? Because we have Prop 13 that limits the amount they can increase your property taxes year over year. So California, 2%. Other states have things called homesteads, which also do something similar. But the question here, Josh, is when the taxes are revalued, um, you know, when does that increase happen? Um, and will the payment readjust year 20? I'm not sure about the, the payment readjusting part, but maybe you understand that. So the taxes would only impact a borrower, a borrower's monthly payment if they have their taxes and insurance impounded, meaning they pay one twelfth of them every month, the lender collects them and pays them when they come due. So I'm assuming that's your question. And the lender has to, or the servicer that you make your payments to, has to do an impound account analysis at least every 12 months. So you would hope that it would come shortly thereafter the reassessment, um, because what can happen is, let's say your taxes go up $2,000 a year and they wait 10 months 
months to do the analysis. You could have $1,700, $1,800 of additional taxes there, and they're going to raise your payment for the future 12 months, $150 or so, or ask you for a check to cover the difference. So one way or the other, you will pay it, um, and the lender will give you options. Do you want to write us one bigger check to, to bring it back current based off of the new higher taxes, or do you want us to spread it out over the next 12 payments? And, and in addition to that, the payment's already going to be going higher because they're going to make sure they collect the right amount going forward in addition to the arrearages, which again, if they do it shortly after the reassessment, that won't be much. If it takes longer, it could be a big amount. Uh, good stuff. Thanks for answering that, Josh. So he, here's a, com a, a comment that I'm going to comment on. Um, you know, earlier I made a comment that here in Orange County, we're sitting at like 35, what did I say, 30, 36, 39 properties today. So 300, 3,639 homes. Beginning of the year, we started under 1,000. So the comment here is, well, it's barely been three months and it's already 3,000, imagine six months to a year from now. So imagine that the spring market is when the most homes come on the market. Imagine that seasonality is here and interest rates are higher. So there's a slowdown in the market. Imagine that last year, this time we had like 2,500 homes on the market and it's only a thousand less than now. So Guys, you can paint the picture however you want to see it, but if you don't know the data and you don't understand what the market's doing, you'll make irrational decisions. So yeah, inventory's building, but as I mentioned when I said that comment, the three-year average leading up to the pandemic, which was a strong market, not a buyer's market, um, a, a market where homes were appreciating, we were double what we are today. So it's all taken with context as falsificationism mentioned earlier. You got to understand the data. So that's all I'll say on that one. Josh, yep. let, let me, yep. let me, let me throw in one, one more piece of data. It was an interesting yep. one that you and I came across this morning. Um, this is from Black Knight, also another great source of data and analysis. They pointed out here, the annual home price growth rate fell by more than a full percentage point in May, the largest monthly decline Ooh. at the national level since 2006. That's terrible, right? However, even with growth slowing in 97 of the top 100 US markets, so slow, <laughs> largest monthly decline in 16 years, 97 of 100 markets impacted, Overall home prices still rose 1.5% in April, nearly twice the historical average for the month of May. Blast you're, like, you're like, okay, cooling. So we need to look at the trend. What comes the next month? What comes the next month? Well, these guys kindly looked out over the next 12 months for us. And they said, while any talk of home values in 2006 might set off alarm bells for some, the truth is that price gains would need to see deceleration at this same rate for more than 12 months just to get us back to a normal three to 5% annual growth rate. That said, the pace of deceleration could very well increase in the coming months. And we've been, uh, we've seen that in some select markets. So don't, again, Jeb talked earlier about, we all have our biases. Jeb has them, I have them, you guys have them. Don't bring your biases to important decisions. Look at data that contradicts your beliefs and try and see if you can poke holes in it. If you can't, then you're probably off a little bit and you can course correct. Doesn't mean you're 100% wrong. It just means you should be seeking out opinions that are the opposite of yours and trying to understand them and reconciling them to why you don't believe the same. There you go. Good stuff. Um, David, David says, 
how do you make the decision to buy? Da- oh, how do you make the decision to buy down points? Any tips to determining whether or not it's worth it? Uh, goes on to say, looking to buy in June 2023, but obviously not sure where the interest rates will be compared to today. So Josh, uh, he's a year out, so it's not urgent, but it, how do you make the decision whether or not it makes sense to buy down points? There's two primary things you you want to look at. Let's take the first and, and easiest one. You might think, hey, I'm only going to own this home for two years or love this home, always have dream, dreamt of living here and I'm going to be here for 32 years. I'm going to pay this mortgage off to my last mortgage. So you make the decision to say, calculate it out. The break even is if I pay two points, one point, one percentage of the loan amount generally gets you a quarter percent lower rate doesn't always hold true, but it's generally pretty true. So you say, I want to pay two points. I'm going to pay 2% extra on my loan, and I'm going to get a half percent lower interest rate. When you pencil that out, the reason why that rule of thumb works is it comes out to about four and a half, five, maybe six years on the break-even, depending on exactly how that costs you. The lender says, I don't care what David thinks he's going to do, whether it's two years or 22 years. They say, we're going to make 10,000 loans with this rate sheet. And the aggregate of those 10,000 people, those loans are going to last four and a half, five and a half, six years. So I don't care whether I get two points up front and a lower interest rate, or I get zero points and a middle of the road interest rate, or if David wants me to give him two points to cover his closing costs and I get a half percent higher interest rate. All of those loans together are going to get the yield that I want on the money that I'm going to invest. So that's the numbers of it. The other question we come back to, we haven't talked about this in a few weeks, but we recently broke a 40-year downtrend in interest rates. So for the last 40 years, it's been easy. We say, don't ever pay points. You're buying down a rate that you're going to get free in two, three, four, five years when you refinance, well before that break-even period is is reached. So some would tell you, huh? High inflation, it's going to be that way going forward. 40-year downtrend is over. Interest rates are going to be higher and trending up. If you believe that, that we're not going to have any refinance opportunities, that this recession is not coming and all the people that closed at five, five and a quarter, 4.75 are going to get an opportunity to refinance at four or four and a quarter, well, then you would lean more towards paying the points if you had a longer term time horizon and the numbers worked for you. Um, But work with a lender who can run those numbers for you show you side-by-side comparisons, show you that 40-year chart, and give you solid reasons why they do or don't think that that trend continues in the future and what that means for you. So again, we say this all the time, work with experts, work with an advisor. Anyone can sell a loan. It's not all that hard. Um, In terms of advising you on the best way to allocate your resources towards the purchase and position you for a better financial future, most people in our industry just not capable of doing it, much less interested in doing it. Good stuff. Um, so Jennifer Lego, uh, we appreciate you being here. One of basically our moderator in the chat. So if you guys have come across Jennifer, say thank you to her. She does that, you know, with her free time uh, to be here. But she reminded me to plug the podcast, so that's what I'm going to do. Uh, thank you, Jennifer, for being here. First off, um, the educated home buyer. So last week we filmed uh, or we recorded an episode where we talked about mid-year forecasts, looking through the end of the year. I'm actually going to be putting a video out on it here really soon. Um, but today we talked about can you time the market. We also talk about things like you know why homeownership is important. You know if you should buy a house now. All of these things. So if you're 
a true first time home buyer or maybe even a move up buyer just haven't done it in a while, go listen to some of this stuff. It's different from the show. It's a deep dive into a topic, you know, uh, you know, 30 minutes on one and a half speed, you'll get it done in 20. If you listen to things like I do, you'll be done in 15. So, uh, it's good stuff. It's educational. And it's the reason that we're here. Uh, with that said, if you're finding any value right now, hit that thumbs up and subscribe to the channel. So Josh, we got Ashley saying a recession is already here. Um, and I absolutely clicked off the question, so I can't read it. Okay, here we go. According to the Atlanta Fed, and interest rates are only going up for the rest of the year. How do you see a severe recession impacting the housing market? So I disagree with interest rates going up through the, the rest of the year. I think there's uh, there's a an argument that interest rates could continue up, uh, but I think the probability of that happening is low. In fact, I recorded a video today that'll be out next week where I talk about interest rates in a little bit more detail. So we'll talk about that maybe next week. But Josh, how do you see a recession impacting the housing market? A severe what? recession? Because here's the... A lot of people out there, a lot of really well-known economists, a lot of really smart people are saying it, the recession that we're about to enter is not going to be severe. It's going to be more of a lighter recession. So let's you can take that into context for whatever. But how would a severe recession impact the housing market, Josh? No. Jeb, I would go so far as to say 90% of economists right now either believe we're not going to have a recession or it will be a mild recession. Right. There are a small handful out there. But let's also go back. You're actually you're talking about the Atlanta Fed GDP now. GDP now is updated daily with every report that comes right. out. A week ago, it was at zero uh, in terms of Q2 uh, GDP, and now it's at minus 2.1. We could have two new reports come out next week, and it'd be at plus one percent. Even though, yeah, and understand, even though we're past the quarter, there's still data coming in from the quarter that affects that number. So just because we ended June and it shows minus 2.1, that's not all the data taken into consideration, and that's why it takes a little bit longer. Just you will, you will have re revisions. It will be another yeah. two and a half months before we have final figures, and you very well could be right. I would guess that they are right. I would that we will have a negative Q2. That'll be your your two consecutive negative quarters. I don't know if you were here earlier when we talked about that is not how a, a recession is defined. About three to six months after that, um, the government looks back and they take a number of measures and they say this was a recession. This was when it started and when it ended. So when we're in it, we don't really know, except for all of us sort of feel it that way. So the question being, how does a severe recession impact the housing market? It really depends on what caused it and how it impacts everyone. Um, you know, we've talked about we had 2007 and that was caused by housing and it had a big impact on housing, but it was because housing and mortgage finance was the problem. Historically, other than the SNL crisis in the late 80s, recessions have, have been positive times for home prices. So if we somehow hit a severe recession, I don't see how it can be good for housing. Your, your best case, Jeb, what? which we, we tread water for a few years. There's nothing, we, we've talked about households are well prepared to weather a storm. So if we had a one or two year fairly deep recession, the people that get hurt the worst are the ones on the lowest end of the economic spectrum. Um, but that doesn't mean that no homeowners would get hurt. There would be some impact, um, but with current loan to values, with current amounts of equity in the homes, with current monthly payments, you know, Jeb and I talked about this on the podcast this morning to pitch the podcast again. 
if I wanted to rent my house, it would cost me $2,500 more a month than it costs me to own it. A lot of homeowners who've been in their homes, they don't have to have been there as long as I have. Uh, I bought my home in 2003, but you could have bought and paid a similar price, you know, 2008, 2009 in the downturn and still have a majority of the gain and a very similar interest rate. So that being said, I think homeowners are, are well prepared to weather any storm. Um, and it would have a either a neutral or a slightly negative impact uh, on housing. Good stuff. I think you covered it. I'm not going to dive into it any further, just so we can move on uh, to some more questions. Um, but, you know, there was a comment that was just thrown up there that I thought was interesting and also something that I think should be taken into account. Three putt bogeys says, won't the fact that everyone is bracing for a deep recession uh, undermine the severity of said recession? Sure. Right. I mean, if people know something's coming, they have an opportunity to prepare. Um, and, and if that's the case, then, yeah, it, the, the, they'll weather the recession better. But what I will say is that there's also a lot of people out there that, you know, don't pay attention to uh, economics, don't pay attention to anything. They just, you know, they're just living their life. And, and you know, and there's people that are overspending and think that, you know, Government will continue to support them and whatever. So there will be people affected, no doubt. Uh, but, you know, I think that the idea that people have, you know, some knowledge of something like this coming gives you a better opportunity to prepare and maybe in in, in turn um, less severe because of that. So, yeah, I, I, I agree with with the statement is where I was going with that. I wouldn't. Uh, I wouldn't have thought of it. So I appreciate him pointing it out. Three putt bogey with the good, good positive comment because three I, putt I, bogey. So if you're three putt bogey, that means you're on the green of regulation every time. See, that's not my problem. See, my problem is I'm a three putt double or triple bogey because I'm not even getting to putting until I'm you know three shots in, four shots in. In many cases, even you know it's. It's a tough, it's a tough life being a golfer. Jeb, my, my problem is crushing the ball with little to no idea where it's going to end up. That's my problem. Uh, anyhow, uh, yeah, we could go in. We could make a whole other series <laughs> on, on how terrible golfers uh, we are. Uh, but anyway, Richard's asking the question, are mortgages for condos a bigger headache than single family homes? Josh, does it vary between condos and single family homes? For the most part, no. You're going to have a little bit of additional documentation. We need a, a condo certification that basically gives us some information about the complex. If the complex is in good shape financially and well-maintained, really not all that different than a single-family residence. If you have a high concentration of investment properties in there, if you have lawsuits going on um, that aren't just slip and falls, that are like construction defects, things of that sort, it can be a problem. But I would say for most condos, no, no different than a single family. All right, Josh, I'm going to try to power through some questions here just because we have a hour, lot of hour, hour, just bang them hour, out. hour, baby, 30, 30 ish minutes left. Um, some good questions, but I think a lot of them we can answer quickly. Uh, Al, uh, appreciate you being here. Al, what happens to the mortgage after someone passes away? Let's say a parent passes away. The home is in a trust with a child listed as the beneficiary. So can the child continue to make those payments or you know, and keep that mortgage or they have to refinance out of it, what happens? 
there is no due on death clause. The only exception here, so meaning no, you can keep that mortgage. You, they have the right to foreclose. If you don't meet the terms of that mortgage, you have the right to keep making them the payments that were agreed to by the original borrower. The only exception to that is reverse mortgages. Reverse mortgage, if they move out of the property for any reason, including death, within six months, it needs to be paid off. All right, good stuff. Um, Ivy says, does every lender have different fees? How can I negotiate the closing fees with the lender? I was told by the lender that I have to wait for the title for specific closing numbers. So Josh, let's take this into really two two to three part question. Um, we'll start with the, the, the last thing in mind or, or the last portion of the question first. Uh, does the, the lender have to wait for title fees to be able to give you an accurate closing number? Is that accurate? Yeah, because we'll generally overestimate. I want you okay. to be prepared for the worst case. So when we get, you send me over a contract and you say, hey, escrow is these guys, we're going to reach out and say, hey, can you give us third party fees? We know what our fees are. And when we say our fees, um, Ivy, if you wanted to negotiate with me on lowering my fees, that would be impossible because we don't have any fees. So box A of your loan estimate is going to be first party fees, meaning the lender and or broker that you're working with. So processing, underwriting, loan docs, any and that fun stuff. Um, you're also going to have some things, appraisal, credit report. Um, those are true pass-through costs. You're going to see the actual invoice and you're going to pay that. And they don't vary very much. So when you're saying, I would like to negotiate on a purchase, you're not going to get to negotiate much. Jeb, why don't you explain how title escrow and all that works in terms of your contract and your negotiation when you're writing your offer? Well, yeah, but let, let's address the, I mean, the idea, there are some lenders out there still charging fees, right? So not everybody is a no cost lender. So you're not crazy, Ivy, if you think you're getting charged fees and, and being able to negotiate, because if you're getting charged fees, there's an opportunity for you to negotiate those fees potentially, and or find a broker that's not charging you fees. So there's an opportunity there, no question. And the first part of that question are, do the, the lender's fees vary? Sure. Sure they do. Josh's fees are going to vary from, you know, another lender just based on profit margins, staffing, whatever they they're they're trying to um uh, uh bring home if you will. So and, and they might be exactly the same, some might not be. So that's why it's a good idea to shop and, and get some comparisons. Box A as Josh Josh mentioned is what you need to pay attention to. But title and escrow and those fees in this environment, you know, the seller is still picking the title and escrow companies, or if you're in an attorney state, the attorney and, and what have you. So those fees aren't really controlled by us as a buyer. Um, we don't really have a choice in, in many markets out there who we use. Uh, so the seller picks that company, the company has fees, and those fees typically aren't negotiable. Um, you know, can you try to negotiate them? Sure. Most times you're not getting anywhere in that process. So um, the lender fees are really the, the and when I say lender, the, the broker, the bank, whoever it is you're going to, to get your loan is the, maybe the only variable in that, in that, uh, that worksheet that you're looking at. So. And again, here I'm reading between the lines, but if you ask, hey, I'd like to negotiate the fees on this and say, hey, I need to wait for third party fees. 
The third party fees you can't negotiate with the lender. So it tells me they're wanting to push the conversation off further down the line. Um, so take it take it for what it's worth. They should be able to show you the numbers, walk you through them. Um, oftentimes it's easier to just get a, a comparable quote and you see two quotes and you go, hey, this one's much better. Um, that, that would be a, another approach to take. Awesome. And for anybody out there that had concerns about the market, about inflation, about what's happening in the world, <laughs> Everything's under control, people. I'm, I'm glad he piped in to let us Joe know. Joe Biden said it himself. He just got off his bicycle and said that everything is under control. So we are good to go, people. Um, Josh, YouTube user, closed in January, home appraised for 100000 over what we paid. We'd love to know what you paid, so that could give us a better idea. But it's conventional loan. We put 5% down. When and how soon can we remove PMI without refinancing? So what loan-to-value do they need um, in order to be able to get that PMI removed without refinancing? And how long, Josh? How long do they have to have that mortgage? If you're doing it, um, if you're trying to remove it based off of appreciation uh, rather than appreciation or uh, principal reduction, you paying it down, the lender can require you to have it for two years and get to 75% loan to value. Um, you can show that you did improvements to the property um, to expedite that time frame. If you can show, hey, I spent $100,000 in improvements also, that's why it's worth there. Um, otherwise, you're looking at the loan amortizing down to 80% over time so um it's something if you google it uh, fannie mae has a nice little chart of exactly uh what is required and, and i would also say if you don't ask the answer is always no reach out to a servicer they may not require you to wait two years they can it doesn't say right. they have to now i just did a quick calculation because uh he mentioned that he paid 650 at a price for 751 so if you put five percent down that was a loan amount of six seventeen five hundred. If you divide that by the seven fifty one that it appraised at now, you're still at eighty two percent loan to value. So you're still not to that point where you can have PMI removed. Um, so again, just you know, continue to make your your mortgage payment. You'll continue to pay down that principal. Hopefully, values stay the same, go up, and you'll be in a position here shortly. Not, not just pay them, pay them, pay them on time. That's the primary reason for that waiting period is that the lender can get 12 to 24 months to see that you are a good credit risk and you're paying on time. There you go. Good stuff. Um, if you get an RM loan, Josh, and put down 20%, can you refinance or when are you allowed to get out of that arm? So does it matter the down payment that you have to be able to refinance? Maybe answer that question real quick. No. So on a rate and term refinance, if you put 5% down, 10% down, you can still do that. So cash out, you have to be at 80% or below, or sometimes even less than that. Um, but if you're just looking to go from an arm to a fixed, reduce the loan, you can do it anytime. Now, some portfolio loans, some arms will come with a prepayment penalty. Very few do, but they're not completely uncommon. So if you have a prepayment penalty, that could either add a cost or push off the time. Um, but there's nothing that prevents you in one month if rates drop and you can get a 30-year fix lower than your arm, you can do that right away. There's no waiting period on that. Uh, let's see here. Um, got got a bunch of questions. Uh, 
I thought we were going power hour. I'm going to power hour through this one. It's a two All second right. answer. David yep. Thompson, what's a portfolio loan? What are some typical qualification requirements? Por portfolio loan is one that is not underwritten to Fannie Freddie FHA VA guidelines, and it is held by the lender. So they can make their own guidelines. In general, they're going to be more restrictive. Um, oftentimes only a 43% debt to income ratio. Oftentimes they will require reserves anywhere from two to 18 months of PITI in reserves post-closing. They can have higher credit score requirements. In essence, they are loaning their own money. It could be a bank, a credit union, a hedge fund. So they're going to be a little bit more restrictive, but they can make their own rules. So sometimes there's pieces of it that are, are better. So there's two types of portfolio lenders, some of them that are more flexible that will do things, others won't, and some that want to cherry pick the best loans and will give better terms than anyone else will. We have access to one of those portfolio lenders that offers great terms. They're just a little pickier on the loans. Good stuff. Uh, so that was that one. Mariana says, if I put less than 20% down, take PMI that lowers my interest rate, but then pay up the remaining 20% quickly, say in six months, why would I want to put 20% down when buying at a higher rate? Maybe you don't, right? Josh always says the numbers never lie. Look at the numbers. If you're comfortable putting less than 20% down and, and you feel like the terms are better because you're going to do something to pay that principal down, great, do it. Like there's no one telling you that you need to, to, you know, do what everybody else is doing, do what's right for you um, and and continue to pay it. Well, what I will say is that I've had clients in the past um, that say they're going to do something with regards to paying more towards their mortgage so they can pay it down quicker or whatever. When it's all said and done, less people do that. You know, they, they get the bill for, say, X amount. It's hard throwing X amount plus an additional on top of that when you're not required to do it. So just keep that in mind and, well, and stick to your plan. Here's a trick for that. If you want to pay extra principal, go to your servicers website and just put it in there to do it every month. And yeah, after so. a few months, you'll forget. I have mine set up. I can't tell you how much extra principal we put because once I set it up, I forgot about it. It just goes right. every month. Same here. Um, let's see. We got uh, Ty, first time listener. Once this market cools off, and back to normal. I think we're we're getting there. Um, do you see rates coming back down to three to four percent pre-pandemic rates? So, Josh, we we talked about rates a little bit earlier in the show, but they're you know the idea of interest rates coming back down at some point is realistic. Um, is it realistic coming back down to three to four percent? Inflation has to normalize, and we have some weird things here that are impacting inflation. If our government insists on phasing out fossil fuels while we don't have a large amount of electric vehicles, gas prices are going to be high. Semis run on diesel. Diesel is really high. Um, that tr trickles down into so many other products. So we have to get inflation under control. That will bring interest rates down. The bigger, larger structural things, an aging population, technology, um, all of those things tell us that interest rates should continue lower or remain at really low levels the same way they have in Japan for the last 30 to 40 years. Um, but inflation is the wild card. If you make foolish decisions and you allow inflation to run hot, you're going to have higher interest rates. So my expectation, I don't know if it's 18 months from now, 36 months from now, we're going to see that longer term trend come back into play. But we're in a period here where inflation is the issue. We've got to keep our eye on it, get it under control. Good stuff. Uh, Benjamin's got a question. I purchased a home with a mortgage rate of 6%. Three years from now, interest rates dropped down to 4%. I want to refinance, but the housing market corrected lower about 15%. 
and now the home may be underwater. Do I have to come up with the difference and more in order to refinance? The answer is yes. Yeah. So that your, your appraisal is based off, you know, either the lower of the appraised value and or what you paid for it. Um, and if the home value goes down where the appraisal is lower, your home is that's what the bank is looking at the value of that property. So if you owe more than that home is worth in order to refinance, you've got to get it to a loan to value that the bank will allow you to refinance and take advantage of that lower rate, which may include you paying down um, the principal balance. Is that realistic? I don't think so. In some markets, maybe. Um, but obviously, you know, time will tell. So, Josh, couple, anything you want to add couple, on that one? A couple of exceptions and potential exceptions. FHA and VA yep. both okay, offer one. refinance right. options that do not require an appraisal. So those wouldn't be impacted. Um, and Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, the government's reaction to the last downturn was, hey, rates are lower now. We already have way too many foreclosures and, and sales and homes on the market. Let's try and keep people in their homes that want to be in their homes. So if Fannie and Freddie owned the loans and you met certain criteria, they would allow you to refinance to a lower interest rate, despite the fact that the equity wasn't there. If we ever hit a point again in the future, that was one of the, the wiser moves that the government made in the last downturn. I would expect they would replicate it pretty quickly. But as of today, we do not have that option. Uh, Benjamin follows up to say, uh, is there any way I can protect myself in such a scenario? Banks make us get mortgage insurance. Shouldn't the homeowner also be protected? So, uh, the bank is essentially, you know, hedging their risk with allowing you to put a, a, a minimal down payment. So your advantage is coming in to be able to buy a house that's much more expensive with leverage. Um, so, you know, the protection aspect isn't going to be there for you. And there's not really much you can do to protect yourself other than make sure you're buying for the right reasons, right? The, the longer term time horizon, having money in the bank, being able to make that payment, not stretching yourself. And those things can only be done prior to purchasing. You can't make that decision after the fact, um, or I guess you can, but um, th there's really no, no, way to protect yourself outside of that, Josh. You can't get insurance to uh, to protect against a, a down, a declining yeah, market that I'm aware of. start a business because it sounds like a really good business. Would we'll be an just insurance to, company? Yeah, just an insurance against... company, homeowners, mortgage insurance. I like it. it it's, it's, it's steep. It's going to be a steep cost, but I like it. Um, let's see here. Uh, we, we, we. Um, says, if my home value depreciates, should I pay an extra on the principal of the monthly mortgage payment? Not necessarily. Um, I mean, if you want to, I mean, if you need to, sure. I mean, if the market moves sideways, go, you know, pulls back, decelerates, declines, doesn't mean you have to do anything. I mean, the only reason, the only way that decline in prices affects you is if you have to do something, at which point, you could just pay it at that time if you needed to sell versus paying it every single month. So to each his own on that one. Uh, Josh MBA Freak 2008 says, is it a bad idea to get an arm loan in November for a new for new build if house prices are bound to go down from this high peak in prices? So kind of two different things going on there. Let's address the arm loan in more detail. How long of a fixed period? Most people are doing a, a fixed period of seven years on their adjustable. So it's not adjusting immediately. They're doing a seven or a 10 year adjustable. Um, you're going to pay down a large portion of the loan through that time. 
if there were a correction in home prices, hopefully we would be back on the upswing on the far end of that. I can give you an example. In 2003, I did a 10-1 arm on my property. In 2013, we were in the middle of quantitative easing um, and my mortgage dropped a ton. So your mileage may vary. It's no guarantee that's gonna happen again, but that's where we were at that time. And I kept that adjustable that adjusts once a year for like six years. And it went down most years and it went up one year and it made me mad, even though it was still less than what I had as my fixed period during the 10 years. So um, get a longer, if that's a concern of yours, go with a 10 year, go with a seven year, probably at the, at the shortest. Um, and if it really bothers you and you really think home prices are gonna drop, um, I go with the 10 year. Like if I was really that worried that home prices were gonna drop, I'd probably put off my purchase. There you go. Good stuff. Um, Nicole Glam says, do you have to wait until appraisal is complete before underwriting occurs, Josh? Absolutely not. We will submit your loan within 24 hours of, of everything coming in. So Jeb sends over a contract. Introduction says this is who escrow is. We reach out to escrow, get fees, send out your disclosures, pull the file together and have it submitted generally same day, but absolutely within 24 hours and about 24 to 48 hours after that, we're going to have the approval back. One of the conditions is going to be for an appraisal supporting the value. So um, you shouldn't be waiting for that uh, at all. And Jeb, why don't we follow with this? because this sort of uh, determinator says, do you get multiple quotes from lenders before making an offer or get quotes post getting your offer accepted? So I just told you, Jeb gets an offer accepted. We're off to the races about five minutes later. Um, it's, a, it's an important time. I've, I've had a couple of clients here and it, for whatever reason, it's been on big jumbo loans that are calling up saying, hey, I just got an offer accepted tomorrow. I want to see what the best terms are. And this is the first time I've talked to them. That to me is insane. If you want to talk to multiple lenders, do it beforehand. You may go back to everyone, you know, the day you get your offer accepted and say, hey, what's my rate today? Um, but you need to have your ducks in a row well ahead of time. Good stuff. Um, and if you need a lender anywhere in the country, there's a link scrolling the bottom of the screen now. So check that out. Uh, free of charge. Experts that know, like, and trust and can guide you through that process. And it's also for real estate agents. If you need an agent in your market, you can use that too. So Hopefully that helps. Um, let's see here. Uh, Sam NW. Hey, is FHA loans getting more accepted now? So I can't speak for from experience on FHA. I don't do a lot of them here locally. I, occasionally, a couple times a year, I'll come across them. But I have to believe with more inventory on the market, less demand out there, FHA loans are you know getting looked at more now than they were six months, a year ago, just because less offers on the table and um, you might be the only one. So I think the easy answer is yes. Josh, it's I got to get some water. So you uh, click on. Stop. Yeah. Let me follow up on that. That's not really Jeb's market here in, in Orange County for higher price points, um, you know, above 900, above a million where, where most of Jeb's clients are. Um, that's it's, it's not, it's just not something that comes across his desk a lot. I do deal with a lot of FHA buyers and we are having a much easier time getting their offers accepted. Um, does it mean that that uh, sellers are jumping up and down going, yeah, I have an FHA offer? Um, not so much, but it comes down to what are their options? Do they have five conventional offers and one FHA or do they have two offers and they're both FHA, four offers, they're both FHA. A lot of the price points that we're talking about um, are heavily FHA price points. Now, previously you had people going conventional just to get a leg up, but um, we, we are getting offers accepted and we are getting seller concessions covering some closing costs for a few of those folks. 
Good stuff. Uh, Lady T uh, asked a question earlier about selling or renting. Now asking what type of professional would I need to talk to to figure out if I should rent or sell? Talk to a real estate agent. Uh, maybe talk to more than one. I mean, you know, any agent that just tells you, yeah, hey, listen, the market is going to uh, pull back, so you should sell now, run, right? Ha that realtor, before they answer your question, should be asking you a bunch of questions. The questions that I asked you earlier or that I mentioned on here, those questions should be something they ask you. If they don't, you need to move on. And again, I, I, I mentioned earlier, there's there's a link scrolling the bottom of the screen right now. Go there. I'll refer you to somebody in your market if you don't know someone that will have that conversation with you. Because some agents are going to tell you, yeah, it's, it's, you should sell because they're salespeople. There are other agents out there that actually care and want to guide you through the process and take good care of you, whether or not it means making a sell or not. And that's the person that you need. Um, so hopefully that's helpful. Uh, let's see, Ed, buy or wait one year in SoCal. Um, I, I think if, if again, if it's the right time in your life, you got money in the bank, you can afford the payment. I, I think now is as good a time as any. Is there an opportunity, depending on where you're in, in SoCal, is there an opportunity for home prices to pull back a little bit? Maybe, maybe there is. Depending on what you're looking at, it's all a little bit different. There's different pockets of SoCal that we mentioned earlier where the, the housing market's going to continue to be strong. Other markets where it's going to pull back a little bit. So to each his own with this one. Um, but I think waiting a year, there's a chance you see home prices where they are now. Some people are predicting higher home prices. Um, so that it's it's not it's something I can answer. I can tell you that if the right house presented itself today, I would buy it versus thinking that I'm going to buy it in a year because I don't know what the market looks like in a year. And I'm buying for other reasons. So, which is going to bring me into this question right here. So Debbie says, is it a good time to buy for move up buyers in California, given the situation? What situation? Normalizing market? I, I think so, right? Move up buyers typically are moving because there's a life change. There's a reason to move up. You need more space. You Maybe you're moving to a different location. Maybe, you know, there's a, something in your life going on where you need to move. That's typically what happens with move up buyers. Because you need that, timing the market's going to be difficult, right? I mean, you're, if you're selling your property, you're selling. If, if you want to say it's it's near a peak in prices, you're selling at a peak, buying at a peak, right? So does it matter? Your other option is selling at, uh, you know, a, a decline in the market if there is one and buying at a decline in the market. I, I don't know um, what happens here, but, you know, my, my thoughts are that the market remains pretty stable. Can we see a pullback in prices? Sure. I just don't think it's going to be substantial. And I think the likelihood of it happening is not very high. Um, so if it's the right property for your family, again, you, you have that longer term time horizon. I think, why not? Um, that's my thoughts on that. Josh. <sighs> Scott Walter is calling for a depression and Reventure Consulting is calling for a 20% decrease. Any thoughts? So I'll let Josh answer this one in a moment, but my thoughts are go back and look at what I was going to make a reference to a movie with Jim Carrey. And I, I don't even know the other guy's name, Lloyd and whatever. Um, where look at what they've been saying for two years and see if it's advice that you feel strongly about. Were they accurate? Have they been accurate? Because the answer, the easy answer is no. So I think anybody calling for a depression, really? Like, come on. Um, 
yeah, I, there's no validity to any of this stuff. Um, it's a lot of it's to get views. Maybe there's just stupidity and they don't understand the market. There's that, that perhaps is, a, is, um, an option. I, I, I'm not sure, but, um, I give very little credibility, very little weight to, to either, um, in my opinion. Jeb, this is easy. Just, just literally pull up the freaking channel and look here two months ago, coming this summer, half price homes. Any of you seen any half price homes? Go, go lines. Uh, the one, one day ago, panic sweeps, housing pricing for prices, forecasted to drop 70%. Uh, you have to be retarded to even say these things. Whoa, we you had, can't say that. We had, the, your wife's not here to chastise me. No, but there's uh, 294 people that are. They they can go they can go wild on me, and I apologize. I meant it in the uh, non-whatever uh, sense of the word. But the, the, to, to say things like that, you are just wildly... Um, apart from from any reality of the market we had the greatest housing crash that we will ever see in 2008 home prices didn't crash 70 percent so you're, you're going to tell me now today we do with with uh you know 14 years of the best underwritten loans on record levels of equity with borrowers in stronger positions that you somehow we're going to get you that. don't understand data josh you're yeah. you just don't know you don't well, I know, know that, i know There's that he magic has, numbers out I, there i know that, that are coming 30- out in seven days I know the fact that he has 32,000 subscribers tells you that there's 32,000 renters out there praying that they get a 70% discount on their home. That is the only explanation for someone that dumb who never actually uses any data to support what he says, any real accepted data by a valid third-party source Uh, to say things like that. Um, It tells you that the people that follow him, that go into his comments and say, you're so right on, we're so lucky to have you saying this, it's renters who really, really want home prices to be lower. Um, I, I want that, that I want that for them too. I don't see it happening. So here's the deal. I've been trying to convince, because Josh is looking to grow YouTube. He wants to get in YouTube and do his thing, whatever. But just he he asked me about videos. There. So I told I said, Josh, you should create a channel where you just chastise these, these people. Like you just come out. And just destroy, like, just be authentic Josh. The Josh that no one here really knows. And just come out and just destroy it. Maybe in like a five-minute video. I think it's entertaining. I mean, it is really, it has an opportunity to have an audience. So if you guys are listening and you want to hear that, tell Josh you want to hear it. Because I'm telling you, it could be interesting. It could be fun. And I told him you should have some drinks before it to make it even better. We'll have have an adult only channel. It could be really good, people. Uh, Really, maybe I'll maybe I'll do it on OnlyFans. I'll start my own OnlyFans channel. (laughs) Holy cow! (laughs) All right, we're not going there. Um, so that that guy, that guy. I was wondering that guy. Uh, how long does the home buying process take, and when should you begin making moves to prepare for buying a home before getting a pre-approval? So. The second part of your question, um, I think you should, once you've determined that you want to be a homeowner, I think getting the pre-approval is the right step. Now, with that being said, you don't go out and get a pre-approval if you don't have a job or if you know you have you know, no credit or whatever. You need to have some of these things in place. Otherwise, you're wasting your time. You're wasting the lender's time. So you, know, you want to have a steady job, right? Two years is ideal. You want to have some money. Um, in reserves, maybe you don't have it all, but you have some of it that once you have the basics there, 
then have a conversation with the lender and figure out where you are in the pre-approval process. But you really can't start that soon enough once you have those first two things in place. Um, and how long does the process take? Really depends on you and the property you want and how long it takes to find it. I mean, I've had buyers call me, you know, one day and we put in an offer the next day and in 30 days they own a home. So it can be very, very quick. I mean, with that being said, they call me one day, they're not even pre-approved. I refer them to say, Josh, Josh tells me later that day, they're pre-approved, they're ready to go. We make an offer the next day. I mean, it can happen very, very quickly, but it could also take months, some cases years, depending on where you are in the process. So there's no hard, fast rule on, on this is the amount of time it takes. But I think once you've determined you're a home buyer, you get pre-approved, I think, you know, start start having those conversations uh, because that'll that'll lead you to making better decisions. Uh, Josh, uh, Ivy's asked this question a couple times, so we're going to get on it. Um, what about a lock? 6.3% on a second home. She goes in to say later on that she, I forget what, put 35% down. So 35% down or so on a second home, is that um, is that a good rate? Second homes are a little bit more expensive, but again, there's probably a little bit more information you need. Second homes got much more expensive. Fannie, Freddie, um, anything less than 35% down is very expensive. So 6.3 is not out of the norm, even though that's much higher than uh, other rates. Um, your best bet would be finding a portfolio lender. Um, they are not subject to those Fannie Freddie hikes that they added to second homes. So important to shop is once you lock, you can't go with another lender. That is not correct. Um, you know, I wouldn't necessarily advise it, but if you're wanting to get a second opinion and you come across someone who has better terms, um, you, you absolutely can change. The lock means if I close, I'm closing at these terms. And it's also important to remember that if the rate goes down, nearly every lender has a renegotiation policy. We have a client who got in escrow and was scared to death like the day that that CPI figure came out and rates skyrocketed. And just last week, we were able to renegotiate the rate lock um, down. We got a quarter percent lower in rate and about a half point lower in fee. We didn't get to go all the way to the current market, but you got to go pretty close to it. And the reason for that is lenders want to close that loan. They've already done their work. They don't want it walking out the door. So I'm not saying leverage your lender at the 11th hour, but if there's been a big move, ask them after you lock your rate, has it moved enough for me to get a, a relock? In general, lenders want to see it improve for you at least a quarter of a percent, and they're going to have a cost of anywhere from three-eighths to a half point in fee to do that, meaning you don't need to pay it. You just hope that the market's moved enough to absorb that. And Josh, I want to remind you why you shouldn't say bad things on here. My my son, my 10-year-old son was in here at one point saying, hi, dad, love you. And you're throwing uh, R words around. What, um, what kind of fortunately allows fortunately, their child on YouTube? Do you know what stuff is on here? <laughs> fortunately, I'm, I'm looking. I don't let him go to idiotic channels. I, I let him look at good data and smart people. So I've seen his comments good, all over Reventure Consulting. What are you talking um, Jennifer about? Jennifer told him to brush his teeth. And then he follows up with, okay, huh, look at that. It'd be probably the first time this week that that kid's brushed his teeth. If you're listening, Landon. That would be the only that would be the only one of your children that would respond with okay, also. Exactly. He wants me to shave his head when I get home. So that's gonna be fun. Um, anyhow, let's see here. Uh, we got a couple of more questions. So we answered that one. Um, let's see here. 
this is a quick one, Josh, that you can power out. Can you explain the difference between a conventional loan and a jumbo loan looking to buy in LA County next year? And her jumbo is pretty much a necessity if not putting a large down payment. So what's the difference? So we're going to kill two questions here. There's another one here asking, what is the limit in LA and Orange County right now? Got With it. a conventional loan, that's, LA that's and Orange fun. County, you can go to a max of 970,800. $970, so say you're buying a million five property, you put $500,000 down. Even for people buying million five properties, that's generally not an option. So portfolio lenders, jumbo lenders, um, we have lenders that will do 5% down, 10% down, up into the one, four, one, five range. Um, so uh, yeah, you're generally looking at a jumbo loan if it's so far above 970800 that you can't make the difference in a down payment or down payment and second mortgage is also an option, another strategy. So again, the numbers never lie. We want to pencil that out. Here's what a jumbo looks like. Here's what a combo of a high balance loan with a second behind it looks like and help you decide what's going to be the best fit your needs. Good stuff. Uh, so that nails that one. Um, let's see here. Uh, you know, guys, we're at hour 56 in. I'm going to ask now, um, as we wrap up almost two hours on here, that you hit the like, subscribe to the channel if you want to stay updated on real estate related. You see a lot of the comments in here about, you know, again, I'm not touting Josh, myself, any of that. It's not about that. It's about providing education and letting you guys make the decision, but trying to provide facts, uh, trying to provide data and some context on that data and boots on the ground. Somebody actually out there selling real estate full time that's had their license for almost 20 years versus somebody that got it two to three years ago or four, whatever the number was. Um, so with that being said, you know, if you find any value, hit that button. Um, we do this every Wednesday to, again, provide you with education. There's also the Educated Home Buyer podcast. As I mentioned earlier, you can go there, listen to different information in deeper detail, um, in more context, provide data on some of that stuff as well. Uh, but it's more a conversation, Josh and I bouncing some things off of each other um, about different topics. You know, we covered one today on timing the market. We covered last week on a forecast for the year. There's, I don't know, 20, I think there's 21 episodes, guys, plus these lives, which are uploaded every Friday. So check it out. Um, lastly, Josh, anything you want to add um, as we depart here? No, other than um, it, it, you guys are asking the right questions. You want to go into this market with eyes wide open. Um, know what the risks are. Know what the rewards are. I strongly believe that home ownership is the right move for nearly everyone. Home ownership at any given time is not always the right answer for everyone. So keep showing up, keep educating yourself, ask the right questions, get solid answers um, and, and work with professionals. Like I can't say it enough. Um, we talk to people all the time and, and they're like, well, I started with this guy. I'm going to stick it out. And we get a call back two weeks later. Oh, I shouldn't have done that. It was terrible. Or you see it on the other side of a transaction. Um, the majority of people in, in Jeb's business on the real estate side and my business on the mortgage side are average at best and, and usually worse than that. Doesn't mean that you can't find a good person, you know, 10 to 20% of the people in both businesses. And we have plenty of us that even though it's a small minority, they're still good people to help you. But make sure you're finding someone, do your research, um, get a referral to them, check, uh, check their resources, check what the reviews look like online, check how many transactions they've done. Uh, all of those things, take them all into account. Good stuff. Um, so yeah, appreciate you guys being here. Appreciate the support. 
Josh is going to apologize again for using the R word and we are going to exit. So are, are you going to go back and, and deep fake it out? No, it's staying in forever. People are going to know that. So, um, but anyhow, uh, yeah. So apologies to anybody that was offended there. Uh, but lastly, we appreciate you being here. Appreciate the support and we will see you guys next week. Adios. Thanks for listening to The Educated Home Buyer. Want to connect with us or to a local expert in your area? Please reach out at theeducatedhomebuyer.com slash expert. If you found any value today, please be sure to rate and review us on your favorite podcast platform. In addition, we ask that you share it with your friends and subscribe to us on YouTube. And make sure to follow us on social media. Thanks again for listening.